Hey everyone, welcome back to Trader Chats. It's Imran from Options Insight. And today I've got a good one. I've got Tommy Thornton here from Hedge Fund Telemetry. You may know him from Real Vision, uh, similarly to where, where I appear every now and again. Tommy, great to have you here. How's it going? Uh, everything's good. I'm uh, delighted to be uh, doing this with you. I'm a big fan of yours. Likewise, likewise, Tommy. Definitely. I always want to know what you're up to, which stocks you're shorting, because you seem to be one of the few out there who's still brave enough to sell stocks in this crazy market. Huh? <laughs> I don't know if you call it brave. Maybe crazy would be a better term for it this year. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's been uh, it's been interesting. Tell us, uh, so tell us a little bit about your background then. Um, in, in, I mean, you've obviously been trading for a long time, long, much longer than me, I'm sure. Um, so why don't you give the viewers a little background on your career? Okay, where do we start? Uh, well, let's go back into the 90s, uh, early 90s. I joined the business uh, with a large uh, brokerage firm and I became a, a trader for a large group of private client investors and I we covered you know entertainment people we lived on the west coast um, I we covered some hedge funds and as it turned out in 2000 I left the brokerage side uh, and joined uh, a hedge fund a billion dollar hedge fund I was the head trader I did that for a few years uh, that was in the tech bubble burst and uh, the hedge fund did great but unfortunately the uh, main company was uh, long only and growth oriented and that did not do so well uh, from there I started my own hedge fund with another partner uh, he well we did it for a year and a half his wife got pregnant and uh, his, he said I have to go back and work for a mutual fund and make real money and he did and then I got recruited to move to Greenwich Connecticut packed up my wife three daughters worked for a startup hedge fund about 500 million and I was there for 11 years and we did pretty well. Yeah, we ended up with about $5 billion under management. And then uh, after that, I ran a family office for one of the founders of the hedge fund and then um, raised some money for Alibaba when it was private. Started hedge fund telemetry, which is basically research that I did daily and weekly uh, at while I was a, a partner at the hedge fund. And I love it. It's been great. It's been since 2017. I've got lots of subscribers all over the world. Uh, I put out three notes a day. It's a lot. Uh, that is a lot. Hard. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's hard. And I have like trade ideas and a lot of different stuff that goes into it. And uh, basically, I'll give you the, the reasoning for telemetry. Uh, I'm a big Formula One fan. And Formula One cars in the early 90s, they started to put sensors on all the different pieces on the car. And then when the car would come around the track past the pits, all that data would be wireless transferred to the pit and with all the computers. And they basically would take that data and then formulate a plan for the driver. So it was like, oh, your tires are too hot. You're, you know, conserve fuel or whatever. And I, I look at it like I get a lot of data from all over for the markets. I condense it down and find out what I think is going to be actionable for the markets at any given time. So mm. that's sort of the telemetry name. But mm. uh, yeah, that's like that's I like it. the metaphor. I like the I like the visualization of the racing car. It's funny, actually, it's a very similar story to me and why I created Options Insight or certainly the version of Options Insight. Now, I created my volatility dashboard and that was born off the idea of having like a cockpit where you're flying a plane 
and you've got all your dials and gauges basically telling you how to navigate the markets for and, and do it via trading options basically so it's a similar sort of story yeah exactly well look we're in front of screens all day i have three giant screens that are curved around me and mm. um yeah so this is you know home for me where uh, not this isn't my home this is my office it looks like a home but uh my wife's an interior designer so it looks like you know uh, mm. But come over here and you can see like the messy stuff. So let's so let's talk trading then. You know, obviously you've been on the buy side, very seasoned by the sounds of it, know, know what you're doing, been around a long time. So so what sort of time horizon do you tend to focus on in your trading? And what, what do you think gives you an edge in that? Like what how have you cultivated that edge and why do why do you do that basically? Okay, well so our hedge fund was a long short equity hedge fund traded technology and media and internet, those were the, my focus, but I, I would do more of a top-down top uh, look at overall the every market from currencies, commodities, bonds, and um, and stocks. And for me, I, you know, you develop a, a, your own personality and your own process of what works for you. And basically what I have done and created that works well for me is basically look at, you know, weeks to months type type of trades. Sometimes they're a lot faster. If they develop faster or they don't work, they're gone. Uh, and so I, I really am very, very conscientious of understanding the time frame in the market. I, I trade long and short. I can be net long, 50% net short, 50%. Um, I have a small fund that I manage. And uh, so I, I'm constantly doing things. Uh, but I, I look at Again, top down. Sometimes it's an earnings preview that I will get, and I'll, I'll do analysis on that. With example, like for example, I'll look at short interest. I'll look at put call data on a particular stock going into earnings. Sometimes when you see like really heavy call buying, I think that the it's the positioning could be offside and it could it could fall. Uh, if you see heavy uh, or heavy put buying. You might have a like a squeeze upside squeeze opportunity. So sometimes they're they're short term. I like to try and hold on to things as long as I possibly can. So I'll have some things that are very core in nature. I have a fundamental background as well as not just technical. So I I I'll combine a lot of different things and. and right. My so you process. mentioned the sentiments. You mentioned like positioning and sentiment. Is that something that you you're always fading that, or do you sometimes? go with it like do you try to do you sometimes trend follow or is it generally you feel more comfortable taking the other side when you feel the sentiment's gone too far okay this is really sort of the the, the main process of what i do i i look at demarc indicators uh which are exhaustion indicators uh tom demarc also has some uh momentum indicators that uh not many people know of and talk about but that's more of an offensive type of indicator but what I like to see is um, I'll go contrary if, let's say, that everything's falling apart in the market and I'll get a DeMarc buy signal. And usually it's, it's, what it's saying is the, the sellers are about to exhaust themselves. Uh, and if you don't have these indicators on your screen, it, it seems like, well, why would you be buying at this particular time? And, and I, I combine that also at major inflection points with uh, daily sentiment index data. Uh, from Jake Bernstein and, and the DSI data comes out every day. Uh, I think it's highly actionable, but sentiment I think is really important. People don't use it properly because 
it's a condition. It's not necessarily a trigger. So I will, if, if sentiment gets to, you know, certain extreme levels from zero to a hundred. And for example, the NASDAQ hit 93% bulls last week at the peak on the very high day. Uh, and we had a DeMarc sell signal combined with that. That gave me a pretty good reasoning position short. And, you know, not everything is going up uh, from those levels uh, on me right, right now today, but that was a good general read. And on the other hand, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, they're, they're always, the DeMarc signals are always bearish. I can tell you that back in late September last year, we had market sentiment at 5% bulls and then a plethora of DeMarc buy signals. And I, I like to see a lot of buy signals occurring at the same time or sell signals. Uh, for example, back in the end of 21, uh, we just, the December of 21, um, I can tell you, I, I had subscribers, you know, I had, I had a lot of them unsubscribing because they're like, you're so bearish and the market looks so good. But my process said we have a real problem coming up and it really, it, it manufactured itself pretty quickly on the downside um, right at the beginning of, of 21. On the other hand, again, like last September, we had a lot of buy signals. The sentiment was very low. And now we're, we're, we're right now currently around the same place on the opposite side. So I think things are really, really frothy right now. Uh, very dangerous, in my opinion. Yes. Yeah, so, so, I mean, I, I don't disagree. I mean, I look at various exhaustion signals as well, like um, momentum divergence. That's something I mm -hmm. look at quite a lot. And I often, when I get a signal on momentum divergence, it's often the same time when DeMarc signals are coming out. I, I don't actually, I don't actually look at the DeMarc, but because people like yourself and that mention it, it's usually happening quite at similar times. But what I find though, is whilst you might catch a short term top in a market with these signals, it's quite hard to know how long that 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 correction is going to last, right? So in an uptrend, it's often very short-lived, the dip. So you can catch it, but if you don't take your money, it gets evaporated really quickly. Whereas on the on the way down, when you get a buy signal, usually you can get into that and then hold that long for a much longer period of time and actually do quite well with it. Would you say that you've noticed the same thing? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of psychology in there as well, because what one of the things that happens is when you have this, like a longer uptrend, like what we've had in, in the mega cap names, 2% down day, you'll have anybody that was short start to cover and the, the dip buyers come in pretty quickly and buy as well. And if that starts to have a series of failures, those dip buyers become less inclined to trust any move lower. And then the shorts will will be a little bit more aggressive uh, on the downside. You know, one thing also is there's also this, this period when you see all the, the shorts just plug right at the lows uh, of each day and they're trying so hard. And And I, I, I saw that uh, earlier this year and I, I'm not really seeing it right now because I think that we're, we're in more of a wave very drive. Type of it's because the shorts have thrown in the towel. That's why. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's very true. And and yeah. you have this these this huge, and you know more about this than me or really anybody. This zero dated um, data expiration option phenomena that is just to me just nuts. And it, it, it 
I'm not sure how people are making money in this. And it's not, you know, it used to be just, oh, the retailer, meme stocks, all that. But no, there's institutions and, and serious funds trading these strategies and with large assets. It's not, you know, it's not the, you know, Dave Portnoy crowd anymore. It's, it's real money. And the problem yeah. I see is you're going to have a situation one day where the dealers get so off sides with their Delta hedges and there's a snap in the market. And then those dealers are going to get really caught out and you're going to have an exacerbation perhaps on the downside or, or even on the upside, depending on which way the markets are, have been trending. Yeah. I mean, it's funny one. It's like, I think it can act as a vogue dampener for quite some time until it becomes the opposite. Right. So the way I see it is that a lot of if institutional money is big in zero DTEs, it will generally be a seller of optionality, right? That is the systematic right thing to do generally to sell options. But because they've been doing that, that has just suppressed the volatility levels of zero DTE to such low levels now that actually if you have an intraday view, you're getting quite good risk reward playing it via the zero DTEs because they're just so damn offered, right? Because the, the, the systematic strategies keep selling them, right? right. But there'll be a point where there'll be a re real reason for the market to move 4% plus and suddenly there'll be no liquidity in zero DTEs, right? So there'll be all this positioning that comes in in a wave early in the day and then something happens and then it's just like, boom, the, 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 the one-day vol's gone from like, 10, 15 to like 60, 70, 80, whatever, right? There'll just be no liquidity to trade that stuff. So, and that will to some extent exacerbate the gap that comes due to the hedging. And so I could see that happening and snowballing at some point, but you need like a trigger, just like you needed a trigger with Volmageddon back in 2018 and that inflation data or wait, I think it was job growth data, wa uh, wage growth data came out higher than expected turned around yields a bit and a 2% move turned into a 4% move and the VIX doubled in a day. And it was all because there was fragility building under the surface in that complex, in that VIX complex. And it just, that was the, that was the little spark that blew it all apart basically. Right? So. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Um, and actually, you know, I like to, I always get asked the question, you know, why aren't people trading the VIX anymore? Why, why is the VIX so suppressed? And, I mean, I think you've answered it, and the true answer is that the all the cool kids are trading short-term dated options, and uh, there's no need for people to look out beyond a month. Uh, I actually like to look out beyond a month, especially when you have a VIX under 15. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm more than comfortable to, I and I'm, I just put on a did a um, triple Q put spread at real low vols. Uh, it's it's cheap right now, mm -hmm. and. Um, if we do have some sort of snafu with earnings or economic data or the Fed does something that the market doesn't want, uh, you know, you could have something that really gets the market very, very nervous. And and I hate to use the word crashy, but considering that I've seen a bunch of different nasty markets in my day, really nasty, where there's halts and things like that. And if, if Dealers are caught off sides, or if there's a big account caught off sides, it could really be a Volmageddon type of event again. Uh, do you agree? Yeah, you have to sow the seeds for that type of event. And I think that's what's happening now, right? So we had a period where Vol couldn't get below 18. The VIX was flawed at 18 for like two years plus, right? 
after COVID. So that is that doesn't sow the seeds for that type of event. So now that the VIX has gone and hit a 13 handle, we need to stay there maybe over the summer, maybe even for the rest of this year, who knows? But that's when you sow the seeds for another blow up, basically, right? Where people are so complacent, they don't mind selling downside in the in the low teens because at the monies are at eight and it's just nothing's ever gonna happen again. And then those positions build and they get bigger and they get bigger. And then that is your dynamite for a real explosion. I don't think we're there yet. I just think we're starting to see the first signs of it. We're seeing skew flattening really aggressively. We're seeing, you know, people scared of the upside, thinking that a bull, bull run has started again. I, I kind of think that needs to go on for a few more months at least before you've then got some real explosivity potentially. Maybe we get the seasonal October, September, October weakness that we often tend to see in markets. So, so you get the summer, people think it's all good. The, the Fed has somehow managed to thread the needle. We're going to get a soft landing. And then the shit show happens later in the year. Who knows? Right. But that's yeah. kind of how I could see it playing out. Yeah, that, that's that's very plausible. I, I, I'm from California, as I mentioned, and I always look at it like there's always a pre-Earth quake yeah. before the big one. And I've been through a couple of earthquakes, too. And it's like, oh, you know, we just had a 4.0 magnitude earthquake. And then a week later, you get a 6.0 or something just happens. And it's that shaking of the ground that, that happens. And a very similar thing. And I, I, I probably have never been in an earthquake, but I will tell you this. No, Being in an earthquake, you, you're rattled. You're, you're just, you're, your entire body just feels so like stressed out. And a bus drives by your office and your office shakes and you think it's an earthquake. It's the wow. same thing similar to what, you know, when, when people go through those those shocks in the market they, they they'll sell it you know it, it on the first shake and then mm -hmm. that's maybe what I, I would imagine happens uh going out towards october and and uh, you know looking at the economy and other things like that I, I i think one thing that people aren't really focusing on is that the comps for cpi are going to get tougher this fall mm -hmm. and the last thing the market wants or expects is the Fed to come back and say, oh, we've got to keep going and keep raising rates. I mean, the, the market was pricing in rate cuts for June and March, and which was made no sense to me. But that that I think is going to be that could be the the big problem uh, in the market that could cause everybody just to, you know, hit the freak out button. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to be interesting for sure. But let, let's let's pivot back towards sort of your your sort of style. You mentioned obviously everyone finds their own style that they're comfortable with. Obviously yours is tried and tested for many years. And congratulations on an amazing year last year. I've got many of my subscribers also your subscribers, and they've told me that you you knocked out the park last year. Um, so tell us a little bit about your kind of risk management process. How you think about trade sizing? What sort of stops you use? What's do you do you use diversification things like that? One of the things that I really I, I preach, and it just it makes my life less anxious uh, when I'm trading because there's nothing worse than having too large of a position that that causes you to you know have to risk manage t too tight. So my maximum size position that I will take is five percent at at inception, and a lot of times I'll, it'll be a two percent sized position. As much as people will think, oh, you can't make any money that way. Well, you if you're wrong, you won't lose that much. And and with that also, 
you can give yourself a 10% stop on something or, or even, even more. And a lot of times if I put on an initial 2% sized position, if I'm still, you know, liking the position or I believe in it, I can add up to 5% and then I adjust my stop and I'm, I'm, I'm able to do that. And, you know, there's a lot of hard and fast rules that, you know, you, you got to have a hard stop on this. And, um, you know, there's times where I'll adjust a stop because if I think that the overall market is going to do something with the, the mark indicators that are getting closer to something, I'll, I'll hold my stops and I'll, I'll raise a stop a, a little. I try not to have more than 20% also in one particular sector. And that that has been beneficial because having too much in financials or tech, I think, is is a very difficult uh, circumstance when it's going against you. So I, I'm really conscientious of that. And I look at everything in a very strict percentage terms and, and what I'm up or what I'm down. And, and truth be told, uh, I'm not having uh, necessarily the year I had last year or the year before. Uh, I'm down slightly on the year, but you know I'm, I've done this long enough to know that if I miss the, the front part of the Eiffel Tower trade, I'll get the other side uh, on the downside. And the other thing is also I work for this the hedge fund I was a partner with and worked worked with uh, some of the best short sellers I've ever worked with. I, I credit a lot of what I learned uh, from working with them, and we were net short a, a lot through the early 2000s. Uh, we did great during the great financial crisis. We were down on the year, but only down a half percent on the year, which a lot of people were pleased with our performance that year. But I, I, I will definitely have a set stop. I usually will set it initially at around five percent, and that is that tends to be my warning uh, signal right there at five percent. And then you know the sizing. On the, sorry, let me just quickly clarify. Yeah. So. 5% on the stock. So you might allocate 5% of your of your AUM into the stock, and then your stop will be 5% on the stock price. Yeah. So the actual loss you would take would only be 25 basis points. Is that right? Right. You know, that's, I mean, and we can live with that, right? I mean, 25 basis yeah. points is not going to yeah. crush you. Uh, and and even on even if you, you make 5% on that, you can, you know, I trade a lot, so you can get if you, a lot of those twenty-five basis point upside gains uh, can really add up. And and funny enough, I, I looked at like last year, and my winning percentage was about seventy-three percent. It's about sixty-five this year. Not terrible, but you know, it's not. I'm just. I feel like I'm on a, on a treadmill right now, really going nowhere fast. But mm -hmm. I think that uh, having those types of of stops and you know i also will i have to say you know, if you have a stop on something that's a really highly volatile stock you're most likely going to get stopped out of it so sometimes i'll i'll start with a two percent position i'll give myself ten percent and allow it to wiggle a bit i i think that it's very very difficult to get the exact perfect top tick or bottom tick on something so i'll try and use the indicators that I have to get close to that. And if I have to add a little or something, sometimes I'll, I'll add to a winning position as well. So I have no problem doing that as, as well. Yeah. I mean, I've always found adding to winning positions quite hard, actually. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm, it, good, it is. I'm good at stopping out of losing positions and not letting it turn into a, a, a disaster, but 
adding to something when you've got it, it's moved 10% already. You're like, man, I wish I'd just put more size on in the first place. But what was I going to say to you? Um, so, yeah, so your risk management process obviously is very important. Do you ever use optionality? You mentioned put spreads on queues. Do you use optionality much to help with your risk management um, and, and things like that? I, okay, so for for the the site and what my trade ideas that I do on the site, I I will rarely uh, give people option trades. That's good. It means you're not stealing my business then. Yeah, no, I, and I'm leaving it to the I'm truly leaving it to the experts. I have you know derivative traders that I've worked with for for many years that that help me with the option trades that uh, they know the exact deltas that I need and everything. But the bottom line is. I, I have people that are super sophisticated brand name uh, hedge fund managers and people that read my stuff and they, they get it. They know how to manage things. But I also have a lot of people that are novice investors that will take their entire uh, amount that they have and put it into a put spread that's out of the money that I'm thinking of it as a hedge. They will think it is the you know glory days of they're going to become millionaires overnight. And um, so I, I, I'm very conscientious of of who I'm telling doing to do what and and how I do personally with our fund we um, look on short positions I will sell all the time uh, covered puts on on shorts and covered calls on on longs I, I'm different from a lot of other people you know sometimes people they get called away and they're like oh you know I wish I didn't get called away because I could have made more. I just took a profit. I was looking at it when I added the option, thinking it would be great if the stock's at 30 and I'm selling the 25 put. I just got out at 24 and that's a win, but it's at 20. I'm not, I don't look back. I mean, that's one thing also. It, looking back is a killer for people. Yeah. So counterproductive. You and I have been trained and not to look back and say, oh, I should never have done that. I should have, I should have kept more. You know, that's just, that's just wasted energy. Totally. Yeah, 100% agree with that. Okay. All right. So um, now you, you, like, you know, you've been doing this a long time, as we've said. So you must have some good war stories. So, so why don't you tell us uh, what was your best trade ever and what was your worst trade ever? And what did you learn? Well, we, we tend to learn more from our bad trades. But what, what did you learn from them? Okay, so I'm, I, I thought about this because you, you kind of prepped me with like, you know, okay, would you ever think about this? My best trade ever, I bought Cisco. I think it was 1995. And this, I, I just was fascinated with the internet and the internet was coming on strong and, and Cisco made the routers and everything for the phone companies. And I thought, if this goes, Cisco's going to be just mega. And I bought Cisco and kept buying it. It was my largest position. I had like a like a thirty percent position in in it after a couple of years, and I just held on to it. And then <laughs> my dad was he was not a um, investor. My grandfather was a money manager, but my dad was in advertising. And my dad was like notorious coming in late and saying, "Oh yeah, you know this this Pfizer this Viagra is going to be really big," and that was the top. But he came in and he said. And this is like 2000. He said, he said, you know, I think this company Cisco is going to be something really big. And I, I said, Dad, it already is. It's our, it's our, my largest position. I mean, I it was like mega. And 
I had, you know, I, I bought leaps in 1998 when the market crashed. I bought leaps out in Cisco. I just, it was nuts. And I, I, I said to myself, you know what, that's a sign. And I started taking the position off and it's never been back to those levels again. Um, I credit my father for uh, helping me exit that. Right. So that was a great trade. I will say the, the worst trade, and it really taught me a lot. There was a company called, I, I didn't even want to say the name because the CEO is probably still around and he, he, he ran several large tech companies. But this company made hard drive assemblies and I built a really big position for myself. And, you know, in the 90s, I, late 90s, uh, mid 90s, I think it was, you know, I had a, I had a fair amount of capital, uh, but I thought I got greedy and I, 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 I put a quarter of my portfolio in this one company and I, I did work on it, fundamental work. I spoke to the CEO and, I, and this is before you, you weren't allowed to speak to CEOs, but I worked for a large enough firm that I could get access. And this guy lied to me to my face, you know, quarter's going to be great. We're, we're just going to knock it out. And they guided lower. It was just an absolute disaster. I was going to use another word, but a disaster. And I lost like 30% on that position overnight. And I, wow. I, I just sat at my desk till I think, it, I mean, the market closed in California at one. I sat at my desk till like nine o'clock at night, just in like, I was so distraught. I was pissed at myself. I was pissed at the CEO. And I said, I'm never going to allow someone to talk to me. I, I have to be more skeptical. And it really taught me to be more skeptical, taught me risk management. Like you don't need to risk your families on hoping that this thing's going to rip. And, and I, I basically, changed my thesis. My sizing is all different from their risk management. I'm skeptical about CEOs. Um, I think that that helps me as a, as a short seller. I, I, I avoid hype. So, so that's, that was a bad trade. Um, how old were you when that happened? How old was I? Uh, I was, I think I was 31. 31. Okay. I was yeah. 31. And I just got married and, you know, we, we, we had just bought a, a large house and uh, we were redoing it. And I, 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 ended, I remember coming home and, and the, or going to the house and it was a construction site. It was all plywood and everything. And I thought to myself, this sucks. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's funny because I think the lesson is a lot of times if you just learn from that mistake, you figure out that your legs that just got cut off at the knees tend to grow back and it takes time to get that back. And it took me over, you know, a while to get that back. Mm. And, you know, a lot of times the gambler mentality for a lot of people is to say, Oh, I just got mashed in this. And, and you know, you know, the blackjack table, I'm going to take, I just lost a hundred dollars. So I'm going to take $200 on the next hand and try mm. and make yeah. it all back. And that, that to me is like, no, 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 no. And grudge, investing is terrible too when you you have a grudge against the company and you want to get it back and you just move on yeah. uh yeah. don't yeah. trade it again and just learn from it yeah i mean exactly revenge trading is a recipe for disaster right because you know that's the whole art of trading is about understanding your emotions and not letting them 
control you and you can make rational decisions based on calculated calculated analysis of data hopefully right or whatever edge you've managed to cultivate but you don't let the emotions be the thing that's driving right so and you're right i've all the, the times that i've lost the most money are when i've let the size get out of control and and you just end up making r- irrational moves basically right so i think it does yeah, but, boil down to that in the end yeah when the larger the size of of a position i mean if you're in the money and you're you've got a you know good cushion you can you can withstand some of that volatility but if it's a newer position and you put on large size you're on the razor's edge of with your pnl and i for my own anxiety which i I recognize my anxiety and my fears and my emotions and I recognize them. So I don't let them rule me. Um, that's, that's really the, the, the key. You could sleep at night if you have the diversified portfolio. I mean, for me, I'm very comfortable being that short. Um, maybe not this, you know, today I'm comfortable because I have a, a, a diversified portfolio and I know that sometimes you don't necessarily get, everything to pluck or pick the fruit from the tree uh, each day mm-hmm. and, and on a long short portfolio you're sort of manic depressive because you got your longs working and your shorts aren't so you have to know when your longs are going up you can sell into those when your shorts are going down you can buy into those and and you have to just have that that mindset that you're going to be wrong at times and and how, how many positions will you have on at any one time generally? Is there like a, an average sort of that you have? Um, you know, it, it typically can be over 30. Yeah. And, and I mean, I currently have, I think, 32. And, um, yeah, I'm very comfortable, you know, and I, I, try, I try to be always invested. I mean, there's times where I wish I could just say, no, I'm out. But, unfortunately, I, I, just, I just don't do that. Um, well, at least now, if you're not, not invested, you're getting some yield on that cash, though, right? Yeah, now you can. I mean, yeah. it used to be you get two basis points, and you're like, oh, yeah. but now you get five percent. But that, you know, my my investors are giving me money to put towards a long short portfolio, and yeah. that's what they're paying for, not a you know team. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it's on that last point about sizing, like my that's why I love options so much, right? Because when when the option goes right, it, it increases its own size. So I don't need to, like I said to you, I find it hard to increase the position when it's working, but the option does that for you, right? When you buy a call option and it's like 20 delta on day one and, and you catch a move and it turns into a 50 delta, then it's grown itself, you know? And, and then your position is much bigger than it would have been when, you know, or what you intended it to be necessarily, but that's okay because it because it's doing it by itself, right? And that's what I think is very powerful about options. If you obviously you're paying some time decay for that privilege, but if you know how to manage that and understand that, then then I think it can be very nice and give you a lot of asymmetry in your book. Right? Yeah, I, I would imagine that you um, if you have a twenty, you know, you probably have your secret sauce as far as you know. You like to buy a twenty delta call option or put option or something, and and if it goes to forty or fifty, you're going to be comfortable probably taking some of your gains off, if not all. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to get the 100 Delta uh, immediately, and that's that's great, and it can happen. But I think that th- that's one of the things that um, a lot of people that trade options that I know, they tend to try and get the home run 
where you have to look at it as a is the same thing as a, as a stock. If you can get a 20% gain in an option, that adds up. And taking some of the risk off um, matters as well. Um, I and mean, that's the thing. I, I recommended with Tesla a little higher, a, a put spread the other day. And it, it came really in, it came really close to the, uh, it came right to the, um, the high strike, the, the 240, 220 put spread. And I told people, I said, it's not in the money, but take some off. You've got a gain and the balls are so high in that, that, um, you know, it's a double. You, you can have a, you know, 5X if it works to the lower strike, but you're going to be waiting on that Friday till you know, the very last minute saying, please, please, God, yeah. move well, lower. The, uh, that's the difference between gambling and trading, right? Like if you trade options like a professional, yeah, you're not going to regularly make 5X, 10X on your option positions because to make that, you have to let it go to the death and you have to go smashing through strike and go deeply in the money, right? And, yeah. so, and, that, and that becomes, the closer that goes to expiry, the more binary that becomes because if you don't get your move and you go the other way, it goes to zero very quickly, right? So you, you don't, as a professional options trader, you don't want all these trades to just be binary bets on you being right or wrong. You want them to be asymmetric bets that are smooth in, in their P&L nature, but they give you that asymmetry and you're picking your entries. But like you say, if you make a double on an option, take half the position off and free ride the rest, right? Yeah, exactly. Right? And, and because listen, why wouldn't you that, do that? Listen to that, kids. That's, that's sage advice. Want a chance to speak directly with Imran just like Tommy Thornton here? You're in luck. Our free webinar where Imran will dissect his recent trades and take your burning questions is coming fast on July 11th. So find the link in the video description below and save your seat while they last. That, that is absolutely the truth. And, uh, you know, if you yeah. do get a double in, in an option, that, and that's that's a home run in, in my opinion. And, if and you, the beauty of options, you can always roll the strike up, right? So this yeah. I do this a lot in my portfolio that my subscribers get to see. And it's like, we do a trade, it goes well, it works. And we're like, okay, let's roll up the strike, take some money off the table. We still like the trade. It's still got three months to go till expiry. And if it keeps going, we'll make money. But if it comes down, we've banked something, right? And it's always about trying to make knock a few singles so you've got some P&L to play with, right? Yeah, that, that I think is um, it's, it's underrated in the sense that it, it's knocking it. Okay, for example, just a little baseball analogy here. If, if you get a lead into the third or fourth inning and, and you can – the rest of the game – can go a little easier. You can, I do, I try to get gain. I try to book some gains early in the month and then I can push a little harder on some other things throughout the month. Uh, there's nothing better mindset wise than when you have a positive PL uh, for a day or a week or a month or, or, or a year. Uh, it really affords you to, to be able to push a little harder. You're, you're more clear headed. And, and I'm, I'm coming from, this angle from the opposite side right now because I'm I'm down five percent on the year. Mm. Uh, you know it's it's hard being long short right now, and skeptical of uh, AI and all the other you know tech names that are trading at forty times sales. I can't I don't chase and um, you know I know that I, I always look at it like yeah I'll buy Nvidia and I'll be the last person to buy it. You know I can't I can't chase that and I have a bit of a value oriented type mindset of 
from some of the earlier training that I, I did. So it's just, it's hard for me to chase momentum and, you know, it's the, those that do more power to them. I mean, they, they can do it, but for me, I, I'm, I'm always very, uh, very cautious of, of doing that. And with my subscribers, I I'm afraid to bag them, you know, like, Oh, we bought too late and it's yeah. here we are, you know, we, we, you know, yeah, I mean, it, it just feels it just feels so shit to do that as well, right? You miss oh. the parabolic move, you buy it at the top, and it's like, see you later, right? I mean, it's yeah, like, I, and look, I mean, we've, we've made all the we've, or whatever. Yeah, okay. we've made all the mistakes that people make. You yeah. want to try to avoid those things, and and look, I, I make mistakes all the time, and it just I, I know when I'm wrong, and yeah, it's like in. I feel a huge amount of responsibility to the people that are, you know, paying to read my stuff. And okay. it's not just the trade ideas, but, you know, for some people, that's what they, they care, they care about. And I, I yeah. you know, it's, it's guidance, it's guidance, right? You're steering the ship, right? You don't, you don't want, you don't want the crew to end up in the, in the, in the ocean, right? Yeah, so. Oh, exactly. And again, with sizing and, and keeping things, I mean, I, I could say that, you know, my, per, my performance this year, it's like, oh, you're, you're down on a year that the S and P is up 14%. I know that when things go my way and I get positioned properly, and let's say we have a 10% down move in the S and P or, or the NASDAQ, which I don't think is out of the question at all. At some point um, we could be, you know, that could be near term. I, I, I know that my PL will notably outperform and then we catch some down moves. And that's, that's what happened last year. Last year was, was great because we have these, you know, down moves and, and you didn't have the, the tech names holding everything up. You had everything going at the same time and then you'd get these moves and all, all my data worked great. And, uh, you know, this year you have a lot of stocks and sectors that aren't doing great. You know, half the market is not up on, on the year. Or a lot of sectors aren't up on the year. Uh, and if you take out those mega cap names, you know, it's sort of like an eh type year. So, I mean, I think you've kind of partially answered my next question, which is so what do you think are the biggest opportunities for the remainder of this year? sounds like you want to be short tech or certainly some of these frothy AI. Yeah. You know, but as much it's as it's dangerous, it's pretty dangerous being short though. So again, I'd recommend put spreads as above outright shorts yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I, look, I get it, and you know, I, I I tend to look at it in another way. If I look at some of the the moves that we have had, some of the overbought conditions and the valuations that have gotten just you know ludicrous, I look at it in the other hand and say, and and I also look at short interest and a lot of shorts. The short interest is very very low, and mm. there's huge call buying. I look at that and say, well, people are inflows. I mean, tech inflows have been huge. I look at it that is is it's not that risky if I'm shorting Nvidia after a hundred and fifty percent move higher. I, I mean, I'm not going to be there for an, a fifty percent move higher if it does go that high. Yeah, I just you've got the hard stop anyway, right? Yeah, I, I, I'll stop myself out, and I, and I wasn't short uh, going into the earnings. That earnings I mean, is crazy. I mean, look, I, the AI thing, I, I, I really think that um, my two cents, I think people have taken existing chipsets or products and reclassified those as AI. And, you know, they put new stickers on the back of the chipsets and, and, and 
data, you know, the data centers are all AI data centers. Now, look, that's great, but now it's going to be a real test if they can deliver the earnings. Mm -hmm. And when you have Microsoft and uh, some of the others that NVIDIA, obviously, AMD, obviously, I mean, AMD just gave out guidance of their last quarterly report that I was short going into, and I covered it on, on a 10% down move. They didn't even mention AI. Mm-hmm. And then, like, everybody started, you know, after that, NVIDIA is talking up AI, and then people were saying, well, I guess AMD's have AI, and it's up $60 billion since. And they're never going to have $60 billion in revenue that's going to equate to that. So it just, it gets a little silly. Mm-hmm. And I, I've, I've been through these silly type, moves and markets and i think we're in one now Mm -hmm. yeah i mean to be fair whenever you see a chart that's gone parabolic yeah you you know you're in some sort of silly move the problem is you just don't know where the top of the parabola is right that's the and i've used the mark indicators for 20 plus years and if if anything when i have those upside exhaustion signals it gives me a pretty good idea or a basis of of where it could top and if i'm wrong you pretty much know shortly after that because you tend to want to get a reversal within 10 days uh, i know in 10 days you know nvidia could you know double i guess but um it if you use those and you look at what's happened in the past you have a pretty good idea and if you're wrong you just move on and, and you're wrong it, it doesn't you know being wrong quickly um after having a signal it affords you that up you know the opportunity to get out uh, with a reasonable loss. No, it's true, true. And I think your indicators are very, very good, right? I mean, you've used them for so long. I think you've done a pretty good job of testing them, kicking the tires on those indicators to know if they're, they're useful or not. So I, yeah. I know, I know when they are most likely going to work properly. And again, I, I tend to get things right about three quarters of the time, or, or a little under, you know, seventy percent of the time. That's a better hit when rate. Wrong, you can move on. That's a better hit rate than most investors, right? Stanley Druckenmiller says he's right 55% of the time or something. So. Yeah, but but Stan Stan will put 25% of some of his AUM into something. And yeah. and he, you know, he has this thing where if he's really, really he gets very excited about something, he'll get piggish and go, you know, mega long or mega short something. You know, Stan can afford pretty sizable drawdown if that was ever to occur, but he's a great, you know, he's the best, you know, 30% for, for his whole career. Not, not Mate, so you bad. Don't, you don't sound like you're too far behind if I'm honest. So, you know, yeah. you're doing well, but on that note, why don't we, um, why don't you tell the, the people, I'm sure a lot of them already know, uh, but why don't you tell the people where they can find out more about your stuff? Okay. Well, I'm on Twitter at Tommy Thornton dot or Tommy Thornton Twitter tweet about stocks and, stuff and all the fun stuff but my site is hedgefundtelemetry.com and you can reach out to me um i we have a trial that you can get but i have to enable it or have my people enable it uh you know i'd love to have uh, your subscribers uh to check it out excited about what i do and and you get three notes a day it'll bring you up to speed on on things and i try to be educational occasionally a little snark and and humor uh goes a long way as well. And uh, and when I'm wrong, I, I usually jump on the sword and say, yeah, flat out wrong. And, I, and it's not like I'm, you know, oh, okay, I'm emotional about it. I get freaking pissed. But, uh, you know, I'm also really excited when I when we do do well and catch one uh, nice winner. 
Well, you've been a delight to talk to. It's been really, really nice to meet you. Um, you know, I've always been, I've always admired your appearances on the daily briefing, uh, talking to good old Ash or Maggie. Um, and yeah, it's just great to finally meet you properly. And uh, I hope we, we can be in touch and uh, yeah, likewise. Bring, you, bring you on again sometime. Well, likewise, and uh, I love the stuff that you do with Brett, and you guys are fantastic. And I, I'm just in, you know, envious of the knowledge that you guys have for you. You have for um, all the derivative um, knowledge. I mean, it's just it's it's all Greek to me, you know, as they say. But uh, all right, Tommy. Well, thanks, take care man. of yourself, and uh, thanks a lot. Thanks everyone for listening. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>